Welcome to all talks of the First World Sepsis Congress. My name is Marvin and over the next two hours, we invite you to hear about patient safety and quality improvement part three. Please keep in mind to use the chapter markers if you want to listen to one specific speaker. If you want to see the slides of the speakers, please go to YouTube and search for First World Sepsis Congress. Now, let me hand it over to our colleague Kevin Rooney from Scotland to get going. Good afternoon and good evening, everyone, uh, and welcome to the, the third session on patient safety and quality improvement for this uh, the first ever World Sepsis Congress. My name is Kevin Rooney, uh, and I will be your chair for the, this session. I'm an anaesthetist and intensivist and professor of care improvement uh, in Scotland and the United Kingdom, so I'm really looking forward to this, this session, which, if it's as, as informative as the one I was involved in this morning, uh, will be fantastic. Uh, we've got five excellent uh, speakers lined up, and we've also got a video as well, so uh, we will we'll have a really, ex truly exciting uh, session. So I'd like to first introduce my, our first speaker, uh, Dr. Unal from uh, Turkey, and he's going to talk about the Turkish approach to sepsis awareness and education. Dr. Unal is a professor of anesthesiology uh, and reanimation at Ankara University. He is a past president of the Turkish Society of Intensive Care and is coordinating the World Sepsis Day activities in Turkey. Uh, he's also a very strong experience in intensive care medicine uh, with an emphasis on mechanical ventilation and sepsis. So I'm now going to pass you over to Dr. Unal, uh, and if you take us away. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evenings for everybody joining to this session from all over the world. It's really a big pleasure for me to be invited to such a big and excellent organization. My speech will be concentrated on national data and activities. Initially, I would like to give you some information about Turkish healthcare system. We have acceptable number of medical doctors in Turkey. On the other hand, there is a very severe shortcoming in number of nurses, especially in intensive care. There are about 32,000 intensive care beds in Turkey. The ratio of ICU beds to inhabitants and to total hospital beds are better than several European countries. However, health, health expenditures of Turkey is lowest of all OECD countries. In a study published two years ago, it has been shown that outpatient antibiotic usage in Turkey is higher than all Central Asian and some Eastern European countries. It was mainly related with antibiotic sale and usage without prescription. However, this situation was ended by a directive issued a few years ago. According to the report of World Economical Forum published in 2015, the daily amount of antibiotics used in Turkey is higher than the European countries, and even it's nearly twice the level of some countries. Antibiotic consum consumption of our country within 10 years period between 2000 and 2010 has increased approximately by 85%. This increase is higher than other countries except African countries. 
As a result, antimicrobial resistance rates for different groups of antibiotics are high, according to national surveillance reports on nosocomial infection published in 2014. Under the light of available data, a sepsis working group were created by Turkish Society of Intensive Care in 2014 with the collaboration of GSA and Turkish Ministry of Health. This group initially translated sepsis guidelines and bundles to Turkish, prepared some posters, uh, booklets, and some educational sets for awareness, diagnosis, and treatment of sepsis. Then we trained about 250 trainers from 54 cities of Turkey on web meetings for upcoming educational campaigns. Our first campaign, Sepsis Awareness Education Campaign for Healthcare Professionals, launched by previous Minister of Health, Dr. Mezinola, during World Sepsis Day in 2014 in Istanbul. About 23,000 healthcare professionals working in 71 cities of the country have received this training in a period of less than four months. During this period, GSA World Sepsis Day film was broadcasted on various websites, including TSIC and uh, Ministry of Health websites. Some television programs were also organizing dur organized during this period. Opening session of 20th International Symposium of Our Society organized as a joint meeting with Global Sepsis Alliance. A ceremony was held after the joint meeting to award the Turkish Minister of Health for their contribution to national sepsis campaigns by GSA. We think that these kind of awards are so important to increase the awareness and also to get more support. Press meetings organized during symposium has found place in 54 press reports, two TV news, and more than 200 web pages. Just before the World Sepsis Day in 2015, press meetings by, was, were organized in 10 cities of Turkey simultaneously. Press meetings have been subjected to at least 20 TV news on very well-known nine national TV channels, more than 160 newspaper reports, which have approximate circulation of 2 million, in addition to more than 1,000 online news. Turkish was the most commonly used second language during World Sepsis Day webinar in 2015. I believe that this is an important indicator which shows us the increasing sepsis awareness and interest among Turkish doctors. Simultaneous small meetings were organized in different hospitals during the World Sepsis Day webinar to increase webinar participation. Second big educational campaign for diagnosis of sepsis organized in 75 cities of Turkey with the contribution of uh, around 350 instructions. Uh, about uh, about 12,000 medical doctors more than from more than 300 hospitals have participated to this meeting, which constitutes approximately 10% of uh, all Turkish medical doctors. 
Additionally, special panels for sepsis were organized during several congresses and symposiums of different societies. We are greatly, greatly grateful for their contribution. Another GSA-TSIC joint meeting was held during National Congress or TSIC in April 2016. We uh, in addition to this joint meeting, we initiated a new formation during this Congress, International Transplantation Network, Global Sepsis Alliance, and our society's joint meetings. Around 114 participants from 48 different countries, in addition to Turkish participants, were attended to these joint meetings. The spectrum of the countries and nature of the participants were very important for the introduction of GSA and its activities, in addition, uh, reviewing current status of burden of sepsis with them. We know that sepsis awareness is very low in general in uh, the world, but we, we had no data about Turkey. Therefore, a survey was planned and conducted by medical students of Ankara Medical School under the control of our society in Ankara. You can see those hardworking and productive young medical students on photograph. More than 1,600 subjects were included to survey. Only 11% of subjects were aware about sepsis stand in spite of our activities. The awareness was proportional with the educational level, and it was not more than 20%, even in subject who has postgraduate education. 47% of the subjects had heard it from the healthcare institution or medical professionals, and 60% of subjects had heard it from media. These results are showing efficiency of our activities and therefore supporting our policies. Meantime, World Sepsis Day Working Group of the, uh, our society organized a national prospective multicentered prevalence study. All ICUs except pediatric, cardiovascular, and coronary were invited to participate in the study. All centers admitted their patients' data on 27th of January 2016. And on 10th and 13 days of the study, additional data were entered. According to the preliminary results, 129 ICUs having about uh, 1,700 beds registered more than 1,600 patients to the study. Some patients excluded because of missed data. 57% of all patients had defined infections, mainly pneumonia. Results are already under evaluation now. I will try to inform you about some uncontrolled initial data. According to the declaration of primary responsible doctors, 46% of the all patients had non-septic infections, 2% of all patients were in sepsis, and 8% of patients were in septic shock. Accordingly, hospital mortalities for sepsis was 68% and for septic shock was 72%. However, 
those results were belonged to declaration of primary responsible doctors. When we uh, control uh, the results of the uh, when we control the recordings, uh, which I just received, we uh, we we seen that. 27 of all patients had infection without sepsis. 17 of all patients, 17 percent of all patients were in sepsis, and 9.5 percent of all patients were in septic shock. And one month mortality rates for patients with infection uh, was 28 percent. For sepsis, it was 55 percent. And for septic shock, it was 70%. Those are questionable preliminary results of raw data. And more evaluation is necessary to show exact prevalence and mortality rates in addition to antimicrobial resistance patterns. However, it's very clear that sepsis and infections are important causes for increased morbidity and mortality in our intensive care as other countries, and more importantly, we need more works for education. Therefore, we should show every effort to decrease incidence and mortality of sepsis. To reach this target, we need, we need more data and for, therefore more convenient classification systems. We need support of politicians bureaucrats, and media to increase sepsis awareness globally. We should improve sepsis-related education at all levels. We need global implementation of mandatory directives. And as a result, we need not only national, but also global collaborations and organizations. Otherwise, it will be too late. Thanks a lot for your joining. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Unal, for a very uh, enlightening presentation. And it is great to see the, the social movement uh, that you have made with regards to sepsis awareness uh, and, and the involvement of the governmental support uh, back home in Turkey. Uh, I, I have a question from you, which has come from a, a Dr. Kaushik, and he says that, or he or she says that increased awareness helps in getting many doctors to take notice and follow sepsis detection and treatment. Uh, he, he, would, he or she would like to know if knowledge exchange from countries who have sepsis control will help, especially for resource-limited countries. Yes, sure. Uh, it's clear. Uh, it will be helpful for everybody. Okay. And I, I may add a question as well, if you don't mind. So you said that you, you'd managed uh, that 10% of all of Turkish doctors had attended your education events. So what are the, the, the challenges with educating healthcare professionals, be it doctors or nurses, is they are what we would call itinerant population. Uh, they move jobs, they move hospitals, they, they move countries. What, what plans do you have to uh, maintain the education and continue to roll out to, to avoid a, a dip in the knowledge? 
Okay, we are planning a lot, but uh, these are our society's plans. We, uh, we should uh, do more collaboration, especially with health ministry. Uh, initially, uh, this education should find place at the faculties, also, also, also other uh, healthcare schools, uh, and also uh, for the uh, graduated doctors or, or, or other healthcare personnel. Uh, we need uh, additional educational campaigns. For these campaigns, already healthcare ministry uh, supporting us, but for the educational change for the faculties, uh, for the other healthcare schools, even in uh, high schools, uh, need to support other ministries, other uh, organizations, and etc. As Turkish Society of uh, Intensive Care, we are already in contact with these bureaucrats. We will see what will happen. Okay, uh, that's great. Well, I'd like to thank you, uh, Dr. Unal, for a, an excellent presentation of the work that's happening uh, across Turkey. Uh, and without further ado, I'd like to move on to tell you about the, our next speaker. Our next speaker is Dr. Antonio Artigas, who's going to be sharing lessons to be learned from the success to reduce sepsis deaths in Spain. Uh, Dr. Artigas is an Emeritus Director and Senior Consultant of Critical Care at the Sabadell Hospital in Spain. He's a Director of Applied Physiology at the Park Tolliance University Institute and the Autonomous University of Barcelona. Uh, he has numerous other uh, chairman roles uh, and he's a director of the Acute Respiratory Failure and Sepsis Research Programme. His main research interests are in acute translational research on the pathophysiological mechanisms and treatment of acute lung injury uh, and sepsis. So I'd like to uh, hand over to you, uh, Dr. Artigas. Thank you very much for your presentation and uh and hello to all the participants in this fantastic First World Sepsis Congress. And in the next uh, few minutes, I will try to summarize you our, our experience uh, to try to reduce uh, this uh, sepsis death in, in Spain. Uh, even in the fields where the evidence-based medicine is mature, uh, like uh, coronary care uh, syndrome, uh, patients do not receive routinely effective treatment. And the major reason is because there are acknowledged barriers uh, or attitude barriers or behavioral barriers that I will uh, review later on uh, with you. Uh, it's important uh, to improve the quality of care in sepsis because sepsis is a significant problem uh, with a, related with a high mortality rate, and there is an increase in incidence every year and also an increase in, in severity. And it's a disease that is related uh, with a high cost uh, in the healthcare system. The potential barriers to, uh, uh, for
for improvement uh, and to implement uh, uh, the different uh, guidelines uh, and recommendations of sepsis treatment in the hospital are mainly professionals because there are different expertise in the different physicians uh, that are taking care of these patients. There are difficulties uh, providing education and there are uh, mainly staff resistance to the changes. And also there is in some areas lack of, of familiarity with equipment. There are also institutional barriers as the uh, difficulties of the interdepartmental communication, the uh, barriers uh, in the department uh, collaboration, and mainly is uh, classic the silo mentality between the uh, emergency department, ICU, and the wars. And sometimes also one of the barriers is the limited of the staff, mainly of nurses' staff, to take care of these patients. Also, there are some physical barriers, as the space constraint in the emergency uh, department, or the lack of ICU beds that are uh, difficult to, to admit quickly uh, severe sepsis, or the lack of equipment. Early severity assessment and the time, and, and the time of intervention is a key point. Uh, the most important to improve uh, the outcome of, uh, of uh, uh, septic patients is to have an early identification and to implement an early treatment. It's very important and key uh, to have uh, an uh, early identification of the infection and to have an early control of the source of infection. The uh, antimicrobial therapy also uh, is, as it was mentioned by uh, the previous speakers this morning, uh, is a, a very important uh, uh, point uh, to improve the outcome. There are some emergency tools, are the biomarkers or the scoring system or the non-invasive uh, tissue oxygenation or the rapid infection identification and control that uh, facilitates us the stratification of the patients and uh, to adapt uh, uh, as better as possible the uh, treatment. Uh, our experience uh, uh, participating in the Surrogate Sepsis campaign uh, demonstrated that the an, uh, uh, a progressive improvement of uh, the performance of the uh, compliance uh, of the Surrogate Sepsis campaign recommendations. And this improvement was followed by a simultaneous decrease in, in mortality. So there is a close relationship between the improvement of care and the improvement uh, of uh, survival. Uh, when we analyze uh, the different uh, studies that has been published uh, using the meta-analysis technique, uh, it's clear that uh, the major benefit is when you apply or you treat early these patients. Patients that are treated late, uh, the, uh, there is no benefit at all. So uh, the early identification of this patient is a key point in, uh, if we want to improve the survival in these patients. 
Uh, we Im implement uh, an educational program uh, in uh, emergency room, in the ICU and in the wars, in uh, many uh, hospitals in Spain. And we were uh, able to demonstrate uh, that the, uh, the impact of the educational program improving uh, uh, decreasing the mortality rate. So the mortality rate uh, uh, after implementation of educational program uh, decreased the mortality rate and the hospital mortality rate too. Uh, with a relative reduction of 10% uh, of the mortality and an absolute reduction of 4.3%. Uh, the most important experience, uh, uh, according to this uh, study, uh, was uh, the analysis of the impact of the different recommendations in the outcome of patients with sepsis. And uh, we found that the, there are only some few uh, recommendations that are really playing a key role. Uh, the first is the early antibiotic, adequate early antibiotic therapy uh, during the first uh, hour. The uh, second uh, recommendation is to keep uh, the patients with uh, 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 long protective mechanical ventilation and uh, also um, to improve the tissue oxygenation in, uh, during the initial uh, resuscitation. So that means that uh, these are the, the key points that uh, we need to emphasize if we want to improve the outcome and probably the treatment bundle and other recommendations are not so important as, uh, the, as I mentioned to you. Uh, this is an example uh, from uh, a study uh, from Kumar, but we have exactly the same results in the surviving services campaign. The uh, later uh, uh, implementation of an adequate uh, antibiotic therapy, the higher is the mortality. Mortality risk is 7.6% uh, uh, per hour of delay to initiate the adequate antibiotic therapy. So what we can do to improve uh, the sepsis uh, care so, uh, and to implement uh, this in our hospitals, uh, I think first is necessary to have a strong leadership and to create a multidisciplinary sepsis team in each hospital uh, to involve uh, the stakeholders and the uh, uh, administration of your hospitals. And it's important to uh, identify where to start the initial care in, in these patients and also to define the right population of uh, caregivers uh, that should be instructed and also uh, to um, teach and to uh, identify the bundle cares that uh, should be uh, implemented, to have a checking list uh, to, uh, to control the quality of care in these patients, uh, to establish an educational program that uh, is persistent uh, uh, every year, and to maintain uh, to this process of improvement is necessary to incentivate the, the physicians and nurses 
to have a measurement of the performance and and to give a, and to give a, a feedback uh, to the uh, to the team we were able to combine uh, the our uh, health department in our uh, country uh, to uh, develop uh, and to implement a sepsis code in our uh, country uh, and where the different medical speciality were participating in uh, in this process uh, a process that define a uh, uh, network uh, across all the country uh, with three, three different levels of care and defining what uh, the centers that are the sepsis uh, uh, referral centers. Uh, this is was based in a very simple way to identify the patients according to an A, B, C, D, and E uh, system very close uh, to the QSOFA that was recently uh, published. And uh, doing this, uh, we were able to decrease the progressively every year the mortality, the hospital mortality in all patients in ICU and non-ICU patients in our country. So uh, my last message is, uh, is important, as a previous speaker uh, pointed out, that uh, uh, if we want uh, to improve uh, the outcome uh, of septic patients, it's necessary to work together uh, different departments and different medical specialties uh, with the same objective uh, to improve the survival in uh, septic patients. Thank you very much. And I will be very pleased uh, to answer any question. Okay, uh, thank you, Artigas, for an excellent presentation of your learning from Spain. Uh, I really enjoyed your systems thinking approach and uh, your knowledge of the potential barriers. Uh, we have a question here asking you to uh, elaborate on the education program that you implemented at your hospital, especially the, the nurse education. Are you able to do that for us? Yeah, uh, the problem with the educational program is the, to assure the continuity and uh, and uh, and to have a, a continuous self uh, evaluation in the professionals that are participating in uh, to the care of these patients. Uh, and uh, uh, the first the, the study that we published in JAMA was a, a, multi, uh, a program that uh, was a face to face. But now we are implementing and developing in, uh, simulation programs uh, where uh, every every uh, every physician and nurse uh, can be uh, uh, can be connected and then to have a self assessment and just to to keep update uh, all the professionals. Um, on uh, the uh, education uh, uh, to improve uh, the care of these patients. So the continuity is very important. Yeah. It, it was great to see, actually, that your education program actually contributes to a reduction in mortality. So that's, that's really, really good work. Uh, one quick final question for me. You mentioned that you incentivize the physicians. How do, how do you incentivize physicians other than it's the correct thing to do for your patients? You mean how we incentivate the professionals? The prof yeah, uh -huh. the, 
Yeah, uh, the, uh, I think there are uh, two ways uh, that is we are doing is uh, to give uh, feedback uh, to the professionals because uh, to say uh, uh, data is our resource, so you need uh, to have uh, uh, to request and to to record all the information and to give a report uh, to all the. Uh, septic uh, multidisciplinary team uh, to see the uh, good results or, or bad results, uh, but good results, uh, and then uh, and also to take in consideration the improvement of care and improvement of quality of care as um, as an objective uh, for the general improvement care in the hospital. Okay. That, that's great. Uh, thank you for uh, an excellent presentation and for answering our questions. I'm conscious of time, so I think we, we will move on to uh, our next speaker, uh, Dr. Marty Doffler, uh, who I've heard speak several times before. He leads the Office of Clinical Transformation in the Centre for Learning and Innovation and is responsible for guiding the adoption of evidence-based clinical practice and helping to define and facilitate clinical improvement efforts across Northwell Health, which was uh, previously known as North Shore Long Island Jewish Hospitals, uh, if, I'm, if I'm not uh, wrong. He's a board-certified uh, in internist and he's a nationally recognised clinical leader in critical care medicine and improvement science. Uh, so Marty, over to you. Yeah, thank you. And that was an excellent presentation by Dr. Artigas that uh, what I'm going to talk about here I think will flow fairly nicely from uh, in doing a little deeper dive into the, the processes and history of a fairly large American health system and uh, how we've uh, to date, at least, um, had significant impact on sepsis mortality within the health system. Um, for those not familiar with us, this is what we look like. This is the greater New York metropolitan area. Um, we have uh, 10 acute care hospitals, five community hospitals, a number of affiliated hospitals, 3,000 employed physicians, 19,000 uh, physicians credentialed within the health system, 61,000 employees. And we cover an area that is populated by uh, greater than 10 million people. I don't know what the exact numbers are in, in, in our area, but uh, we're a pretty big place. Um, what I'm going to talk about here, the next couple of slides are actually going to just be some text slides like this that I'm going to walk through the history of our initiative and then go into a little bit more depth and show you some of what we've done. But this project began in 2008. Uh, was established as a health system priority by our CEO, Michael Dowling, and I will put forward that that is a very critical uh, component of success, as Dr. Artigas had shown on his slide. Having leadership engaged in this is something that uh, is very, very important. This is not just frontline, but it's also not just leadership. We began in 2009 by forming a, tax, a task force. They created recommendations and an initial algorithm for how care should occur. Um, and then we began the process of collecting data, uh, review, and analysis. And this is something that I want to draw attention to because this is actually a very, very important step. You cannot act on data that is not of high quality. Um, and data that you obtain just as, as through normal processes isn't necessarily of high quality. Our first data was largely uninterpretable, and our first process improvement efforts were really around how to get data 
from the front line and the actual care processes, that was accurate. And we spent a fair amount of time on that. We began a partnership with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I think most people are aware of IHI. That began in, I think I have them here, 2012. I think it was 2011 that we actually began that initiative and focused on a system-wide collaborative to improve the uh, care of patients with severe sepsis. And I'm being specific here because over time we broadened out to be all sepsis. And we also began initially focused on just one environment, our emergency departments. And again, we broadened that out afterwards. But part of our process, and I would argue to others, is to start small and grow. All the sepsis teams in every facility were trained in improvement sciences and the Plan Do Study Act methodology. Uh, as part of the IHI process that they brought to us, we have three learning sessions per year where all of the sepsis teams from all the hospitals go off-site for a day. Originally, it was two days. We've narrowed it to one, and they learn the science of care uh, of sepsis, but also improvement science simultaneously so they can go back to their day jobs and be working on uh, actually making things better uh, by changing what they do. And then they go back and engage in that. We focused on building our bundle. <clears throat> um, we did not focus on let's get perfect care on everybody, but we began to dissemble the three-hour bundle. And, and, and as Dr. Artigas showed in his slides very nicely, we decided at that time that the evidence best supported the most important thing to achieve in achieving um, improvement in sepsis mortality was highly reliable early antibiotics on individuals that we recognized. And so that was the first piece of this that we worked on. We worked on lactate turnaround time uh, as another component of that, of that. If we don't know they're sick, we don't know how aggressively to treat them. And then built from there. In 2014, we expanded out our efforts to the medical surgical wards in the hospital, quite honestly. We've still not focused on the intensive care units. If you want to get this early, you focus upstream, and the intensive care units are where people end up at when you don't do a, gr a great job prior to that. And we, uh, in our system at least, felt that they were doing a pretty good job to start. Um, so, uh, uh, and then lastly, we started putting on empiric fluids in 2014, 15, and even this year. So we built our bundle progressively to get highly reliable on the different elements as we moved along. Dr. Artigas talked about incentivizing physicians. We incentivized the entire senior administrative team. In 2014, the uh, achievement of antibiotics within 180 minutes for patients with severe sepsis went on the system quality scorecard, and that is a component of how people's bonuses are determined, and not just the doctors, but the finance people and, and the head of the hospital and the rest. So all of that are part of what uh, we did in our initiative. Uh, lessons learned. Some of this Dr. Artigas talked on, but I'll re rehash it because you can't hear this stuff too many times. You need a structure for leadership, partnering, communication, and reporting. You need to overcome barriers, and so data definition and confusing is a very important one. We redefined time zero based upon what people, what the clinicians felt that was reasonable to hold them accountable for. Um, those of you from the U.S. know that the Center for Medicaid, Medicare Services is saying you need to follow certain things. It's perfectly reasonable, but data for uh, improvement, uh, metrics for improvement are not necessarily the same as, me as metrics to hold accountability, and we were working on improvement at that time. Define your outcomes and what you want to achieve. Develop processes to, to, to achieve them, and that's a key component to this. Assess how to perform what you think you're, uh, you need to do. Standardize processes to increase reliability. 
utilize process to facilitate change, and then the greatest gains realized when we refocused on early identification, aggressive fluid resuscitation, and timely antibiotics. So the whole 612-point bundle piece, we really focus on four elements and nothing but at this point in time. We haven't gotten highly reliable on everything there. Uh, some further lessons learned. We treat sepsis, severe sepsis, and shock differently. They have different components to it, and the, and the processes that are involved are different and venue-specific expertise. The critical care people initially were telling our emergency physicians how they needed to care for people in the emergency department. Quite honestly, I'm a critical care physician. I don't know how patients need to be treated in the emergency department and vice versa. So you need to have the actual time frontline front people here. Um, and then data transforms the culture. Once you have results that are showing you're moving in the right direction, then things begin to change. Now, on this slide, um, and this is a, a, a detailed slide um, showing multiple years of the continuous step down, we went from a mortality rate of about 31, 32 percent to most recently the, the, control, the control chart mortality rates are 13 percent, so a major reduction in mortality. And I could go over each one of these. The first piece of this was guidelines and education. The second phase of this was focusing just on the emergency department. The third phase of this was really pushing the emergency department to become reliable on antibiotics. The, the next phase is engaging the floors. And the last phase is when we start pushing on fluids. So every component of this work drove us farther along in our mission. These next couple of slides I'm only going to show for future reference so that you have them to come back to because we don't have time to go through them. Um, but on, on this slide is our emergency department algorithm, and you can't see this very clearly unless you have it on full screen. Uh, but again, you can come back to these slides. And they begin with the triage process, and you move down a sepsis pathway, or if they triage with certain criteria, you move into probable severe sepsis while you're waiting for labs. We didn't wait for things to get moving. A slightly different version of that for the inpatient, and again, you can look at all of this in more detail. I'm leaving them up just enough time for them to be frozen for uh, if this is on YouTube or whatever, but you can certainly get the slides uh, from, the, from the sessions if, if, if we're going to provide them, as I assume we are. Um, the first slide in a little more detail so you can actually see this. You start off and based upon triage criteria, move down a pathway of beginning with sepsis, or we just presume based upon how sick you are and you have an infection, you have severe sepsis. Farther down, there are pathways to cross over and giving you details on our uh, definition of organ dysfunction and what our actual bundle elements are uh, on these other uh, components of it. But then I want to actually spend you know, a, a few minutes here uh, in closing this uh, out uh, with the time allotted um, with a little bit of you know, how this actually works. So a case study, one of the hospitals is working on things. They're not really sure how to make things better. But you really go in and um, map things out. Uh, every single step uh, involved in a component of the care process, what it takes to give antibiotics to a patient, what it takes to get blood to the lab and the results back to you, and this is what's called a swim lane process map. So all of the individuals that are involved are on a lane, and the process flows back and forth, and you can see exactly who's supposed to do what in what order, and then you move to the next step of sitting down and identifying in a group setting with everyone represented from the unit clerk to the nurses to the doctors to the respiratory therapist, where are the steps that we think that there's something that could be fixed? And then you move to the next step and you say, which of these are the most important and are going to have the biggest impact on what we're trying to achieve? And then you begin the process of doing your plan, do, study, act work around one problem. 
if you look over the seven, eight years of us doing this work at Northwell, there have been thousands, if not tens of thousands, of Plan Do Study Act uh, uh, activities gone on in the various hospitals on the various steps of this to really take out variability that is not helping in the care of patients and is taking time and wasting time when we know from all of the data that's out there that you need to recognize as soon as possible, you need to start get your tests off as soon as possible so that you continue your recognition of severity, you need to get your antibiotics as soon as possible, you need to get your fluids going as soon as possible, all of that as major components of making a difference in the care of your individuals with sepsis. And I know I've talked fast in the interest of getting all of this in because there's an enormous amount here. It's hard to summarize seven, eight years in 12 minutes, but hopefully I've done that in a way that is useful to the audience, and I look forward to any questions. Thank you, Martin, for, for, for a great presentation. Uh, I've, I've heard you before, and every time I learn something new, uh, I love the, the improvement science approach that you take at Northwell, and the quality planning is, is an important part, even before the plan do study act cycle. You, you talked about the, the importance of measurement, and you talked about uh, knowing that if you want to concentrate on four big, big pieces of work. Uh, with regard to the, your, your measurement and your process measures and your outcome measures, you, you talked about what about balancing measures? Did you look at any unintended consequences? And if so, what were they? Do we look at unintended consequences? Yes. One of the things, and, and I, I'm sure that this is familiar to many in the audience, many, one of the things that people really uh, focused on uh, here was the adverse consequences of the early aggressive empiric fluid administration. And so we have looked at that. And what we've found is pretty much the same thing that Terry Clemmer and the group out at Intermountain published a couple of years ago. As we became more reliable in administering our aggressive fluids, we actually reduced the incidence of, of mechanical ventilation um, in our population. So we came to the conclusion that we were not risking harming patients by being aggressive with fluids. We were risking harming them by not being aggressive with fluids. Similarly, we looked at the concerns around antibiotic stewardship, and we engaged our infectious disease colleagues in this, and they felt that we should indeed be aggressive in the early uh, uh, use of broad-spectrum antibiotics, but that they promoted a timeout at 72 hours to look carefully and see what your data is, how the patient has progressed, and if anything at all supports narrowing or even stopping antibiotics to see whether you should continue them. So I think both of those are probably the key elements that people are concerned about, and we've looked at both of them and concluded, for the time being at least, we continue to monitor them that the course we're on is the best one for the care of our patients. Okay, that's great. Uh, there's a question here from Conrad, and I know the answer, but I'll let you answer it. Uh, will you or have you published this work? Uh, yes, yeah, so we've published in, uh, uh, first uh, the, the methodology that we used. Uh, we were awarded the Eisenberg Quality Award last year, and so the Joint Commission Journal on Quality and Patient Safety has our methodology and a detailed analysis of our outcomes, including uh, financial and accounting measures, has just been accepted for publication by Critical Care Medicine, so that will be coming out. Uh, sometime in the next couple of months, and we've published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine an analysis of the uh, fluid metric that we have been using, which is starting our fluid boluses within 30 minutes of recognition of severe sepsis 
and that is an independent predictor of uh, patient benefit, that is already impressed in the annals of emergency medicine. So we've been analyzing our data. These are all, all qualitative analysis because none of this is randomized. But if I go back to the slide on the uh, outcomes, every one of those dots is a thousand individuals. At the, in the size of our health system, we see on average a thousand cases of sepsis, severe sepsis shock per month. So our data set on this is quite large and allows us to do the kind of analysis that we're talking about. Okay. And, and one final question. Have you looked about the, the return on investment with regard to this work as compared to life saved? So, life saved or, or financial? Give me what you want on your question. Well, so if you can, if you look at the, the, you've educated a lot of staff and you take them out from work, so that's going to be a cost to the organisation. So there'll be the cost to the organisation, but then do you recoup that that cost back by a less deaths, less time in ICU, less ventilated days? Yeah, so it's actually very, very uh, the cost of this is, uh, or the, the realized cost of this has been fairly low. We have a relatively small team dedicated to this as their day jobs. Uh, most of this is done on the margins of people who are caring for patients every day and what they fit into the time between things in their administration. So the overall uh, quantifiable cost is low. Um, again, we've reduced mortality rate from 31 to 13%. Uh, turning that into actual number of saved lives would be a large number, um, but it's hard to take a mortality rate and turn it into a hard number, so I hesitate to do that. On a financial basis, we've actually seen significant benefits. One, by having earlier and better recognition uh, in the U.S. at least, where better documentation translates into more accurate coding. Uh, there's been an uplift in our uh, uh, revenue in the early on phase of it, and the analysis that we're publishing in critical care medicine actually shows that when we provide perfect care, all four bundle elements as we've defined them are done compared to less than perfect care. There's actually a reduction in cost to the greater community. What we get paid, what our revenue is, falls. But what we save in reducing costs by ICU utilization, time on mechanical ventilation, uh, antibiotic usage, et cetera, is even greater to the point that there is a net benefit to margin in the health system budget by doing this care very well. And again, that will be published in the critical care medicine at some point in the near future, and I uh, urge everybody to look at that in detail because I do think that it's enlightening that you can provide better care and save money for the, the broader community and do better financially in your own institution. Okay, that, that's great. That's great, Martin. That's fantastic. Uh, we could listen to you all, all night, but I think we're going to have to move on for the sake of time to uh, our next speaker, who I'm sure will be equally good, and that is Doric, Dr. Eric Williams from the United States as well. Uh, Dr. Williams uh, pursued his medical education at Duke University, uh, and he subsequently trained in pediatric critical care medicine. He joined the Baylor faculty in 2004 and worked in both the pediatric and the cardiovascular ICU, and he became the medical director of PICU uh, in 2008 and then the medical director for quality in 2010. And he's now the chief quality officer at Texas Children's Hospital since 2014. Uh, he's got an interest in integrating systems and resilience engineering, uh, so I'm looking on to, forward to hearing uh, what he thinks about uh, reliability and, and sepsis care. Uh, over to you, Dr. Williams. 
Hello, and uh, thank you. This is uh, actually turning out to be a wonderful, wonderful conference, and I feel that uh, everyone's involvement uh, just sort of uh, accentuates uh, all the other work that we've done. And hopefully the work that I'm going to speak towards um, will also uh, uh, echo uh, with a lot of the work that's been already done. And so my uh, talk today is to describe the potential of a rapid response teams to benefit uh, sepsis and sepsis outcomes. And I think uh, the biggest thing is that is the potential, which, you know, um, it's such an exciting time to be a part of this, to watch the impact of performance improvement science when it's done well, as Dr. Dorfler uh, has shown. And so whether you define your team as a medical emergency team or a rapid response team, and wherever that team is uh, necessarily uh, em uh, employed within your hospital or deployed, the important thing is it's this complex socio-technical system, and that involves the whole human factors uh, engineering piece. And so that's, that's the part that I like to focus on. So if you actually look at some of the different uh, organizations that have looked at uh, the details and how technical work is actually done in healthcare, it's very, very complex, and we sort of have a rudimentary understanding of what's actually going on. And the realization that the system we work in often adapts because people manage to work around the complexities that are inherent within that system. And importantly, the technical work in terms of our success in what we do is clearly dependent upon the knowledge of illness and the response. You know, so all of our things with respect to education around sepsis and those elements are hugely important, but the delivery of that uh, is the ultimate achievement for success, so how to get things done, where things are supposed to happen, what's likely to happen, and how to make what is needed happen. I think sometimes that's uh, uh, not necessarily focused on enough in terms of getting a solution that will actually uh, uh, solve any type of problems. And more importantly, people on a day-to-day -day basis create success in these environments by managing these so-called messy details. And I think when we wrap our arms around sepsis, we would all say that sepsis is, is messy, you know, and it's not so clear-cut all of the time. And people, as the, as the data changes in front of them, as information uh, guides them, uh, they adapt their performance. And importantly, that becomes the nature of everyday work, but oftentimes we don't necessarily measure any of that. So importantly, getting to that piece will be an important things in the future. You know, the, the messy details of if labs are late or information is incomplete, you have to make uh, assumptions at a certain point, point in time. So when I think from an engineering standpoint of what is the problem that this entire Congress is trying to get at, and uh, if I had to define it, we need a way to minimize the time from evidence for concern related to sepsis, obviously, to a definitive treatment. That's our goal in this. And, and, it's, and it's problematic, right? So the first part is that accurately identify. Um, and and uh, I think Dr. Dorfler pointed to it, too. It's like, well, is it sepsis? Is it probable sepsis? Is it, do I know with 100% certainty? So the people who are accurately identifying these things with, okay, I'm looking at procalcitonin, different biomarkers, or, or different types of pathogen detection. But the key piece is this how to subsequently direct the definitive treatment. And that's, that's the different team, teams of people do that. Systems can alert us to problems, but it's the teams of people working together that have to do that. So our goal, everyone's goal together, is defining these optimal triggers. And many people have started talking about that in the last 48 hours. And then refining that highly reliable care team. And I think that's all what we endeavor to sort of move towards. And we know that it works, right? trauma teams around the country, uh, especially in pediatric trauma, coronary emergencies. If I have crushing subternal chest pain radiating to my left axilla and jaw, 
I don't want to have there be a delay if someone's concerned maybe it's uh, uh, abdominal upset or, or indigestion. The system needs to respond effectively. And similarly with stroke, if I'm having a certain type of weakness. So we know those things work, but those are much more easier to define. So in pediatrics, our classic uh, approach is to use the ACTM health evidence-based guidelines. And not to belabor and go through the details of this, but all the clinicians that you ask could recite the details of what's, uh, of what's contained within this document, but does it actually get implemented in a timely fashion? And I think that's the key piece for performance improvement and quality improvement. So it means, can you recognize the problem? That's the trigger piece and the do something part. So that's the combined goal with the work. So in our emergency department, when we deploy this emergency team, you know, you have to go through the arrival to the emergency department, the triage process, you know, a bunch of stuff happens, and then you dispose of the patient ultimately to their particular care area. In choosing that time zero, again, referring back to Dr. Dorfler, that picking that right time is, is easier in the emergency care setting. But the, the approach is to recognize badness, do something, and then standardize or protocolize your work to minimize and pull this time together. So the earlier we can intervene in things, we can have improvements. Our work with respect to uh, this resulted in significant process improvement times in the timeliness of antibiotic delivery and timeliness for a fluid bullet. And although we didn't go into it with mortality, looking at a mortality benefit, we ultimately have it, had an impact in mortality, as well as the reduction in patients who subsequently went on to need uh, CRRT therapy for renal dysfunction. So this slide identifies the problem. The uncertainty is on the y-axis there, and er the further I am out from the diagnosis, the di uh, it's less certain. And so as my nonspecific symptoms become more specific, we can hone in on the diagnosis. As new tests become available, then we can get uh, clearly more towards where we need to go. So it turns out when we actually looked at our rather broad-encompassing uh, pediatric septic shock alert, uh, the sensitivity, 81%, specificity, 89%, but the positive predicted value is only 4% because it was so broad. So as you can imagine, the people's response was alert fatigue. You're alerting on many, many times, but the goal was to try and capture everyone at risk. So you're further out on that uncertainty curve. Uh, similar people have looked at if you could actually predict the cardiac arrest, so a high-risk trigger, they could understand 24 hours prior to cardiac arrest just by looking at different vital sign measurements, and ultimately an intermediate risk category 44 hours prior to the arrest. And ultimately, they thought that the earlier clinical assessment could leave, uh, result in significantly improved outcomes. But the difficulty for this new trigger is, what should I do with that intervention at 24 hours ahead of time or 44 hours ahead of time? So as the new triggers come along, the highly reliable team has to determine what are they going to do with that information. Uh, and in similar work, uh, the, a group looked at just potentially catastrophic uh, outcomes with respect to ICU care, and they found that they could prevent future deteriorations at the bedside, um, and using a more uh, uh, dynamic score could actually capture patients well beyond what a typical Apache or a PRISM-3 score would find for them. So I go back to this classic approach to monitoring a patient, and we see vital signs, heart rate, blood pressure, um, saturations and blood pressure in a particular patient. And we have that art of medicine where we combine all this information into a particular package and we kind of do stuff with it at the bedside. And how can we mathematically manipulate that? So this is actually data that an individual at our institution did with respect to the hypoplastic left heart syndrome um, and the prediction of either cardiac arrest or need for intubation. 
um, which they published. The basis being it's difficult to recognize changes from standard bedside monitoring, but you can use mathematical transformations so that I hate to use the power of big data or the statement of big data, but these could actually be done. So I show you this figure to show on the top part, the heart rate uh, in black, the, uh, the, the saturation uh, in green, um, it's a hypoplastic left heart patient, and then the respiratory rate in blue. And strikingly uh, noticeable is uh, a lack of significant variability there. It looks uh, quite healthy, so to speak, but the red score on the bottom actually happens to be a particular risk index uh, mathematically derived from all of the features of the vital signs. And so interestingly enough, uh, as you march across the bottom there, you'll find out one and a half hours before the event, there's a 3.87 times likely to arrest than the average patient. And an hour before it goes up to 10, tw almost 20 times likely to have uh, a catastrophic event for these patients. Um, and similarly, in a short, you know, 15 minutes more, 35 times more likely. The important thing for us is being able to capture this data and then being able to decide what am I going to do with these particular interventions. So this will happen for us with respect to sepsis as we're able to incorporate uh, more information regarding the patient's pathophysiology. Similar work um, uh, looked at how can we actually deliver that type of care at the bedside, wherever that bedside is, and ultimately found that the rapid recognition and administration of therapies can be done outside of critical care. And similarly, they decided to change the term to that critical care was actually a need and not just a place that you could be clearly doing these therapies in other geographies, but the success ultimately required champions, um, an appropriate infrastructure, again, as many people have elucidated to, uh, with was education and appropriate implementation. Again, in terms of improving the early recognition and response to in-hospital sepsis, everyone has talked about an educational framework. Uh, have an understanding of what the expected response to treatment and ultimately minimizing unnecessary variation. But I can't emphasize that enough that in certain cases, we absolutely need certain variation that allows us to succeed and ultimately provide those clinical indicators for quality improvement initiatives. The data, again, and it's been said again, the data drives where your quality improvement measurements need to go. So my last feature, and again, I have uh, rapid cycles here for you. While you're waiting or determining the next best trigger, create the dedicated team to apply the highly reliable resuscitation paradigm so that we can consistently and appropriately care for these patients. Machine learning is going to help us so much in the future. So I'd like to close on that and be happy to answer any questions. Okay, thank you, Dr. Williams, for an, an excellent presentation about how we can, uh, vital signs will, will, will teach us things in the future through automation. So w one of the concerns that people have is with the adoption of rapid response teams is, is uh, you may end up de-skilling the, the ward staff. So if critical care come and do, do everything and take patients away, that actually the, the ward staff are less and less able to, to, to do things. What, what are your yes. thoughts on that? Um, it's definitely a risk. I mean, as soon as you have a dedicated unit, for example, as soon as you put all of your cardiac patients in a cardiac unit, the general pediatric intensive care unit now no longer learns those skills. So we actually did surveys back to uh, the teams involved, uh, the bedside care providers involved in the rapid response on the receiving end. And, and their feedback was they wanted to know more information about why the transfer occurred and what other educational things they could receive. And so Based on that, we actually developed an educational paradigm to go back to them and share with them, well, this is exactly the things we were concerned about, 
and or maybe you should have been concerned about an hour earlier or an hour and a half earlier. That gets back to the difficulty in defining the time zero. Um, it's much easier sometimes in hindsight than in foresight. But, um, but actually asking them what they needed to learn um, and try and bring that back to them. But I think ultimately our success is going to depend on these expert teams. But you're right, it will dumb things down for people. But we're going to have to somehow um, manage health information technology to bridge that gap so that it can be smarter to alert us. Um, again, sort of the topology of alarms that are going off to help guide us. Um, and like with that particular hypoplastic left heart syndrome patient, long before the patient's ill, um, it's capable of telling us something. So one of the things we're seeing in Scotland and elsewhere in the UK is using uh, admission to critical care uh, as a learning event. And every, every time someone's admitted to ICU, there's a review, uh, but not just on, of bad practice and missed opportunities, but obviously of good practice as well and, and feeding this back out to, to the referring teams. Are, are with your rapid response teams, do, do you feed back the good practice as well as the bad practice? Are you referring to the learning from excellence that's come out of Scotland, or yeah, yeah, well, lots of just you know, it's not just the learning from excellence, but just if we if, if I admit someone to ICU, uh, we normally only uh, give feedback to teams when they haven't done well. Uh, but what we're actually oh, thinking right. about is we're actually going to feed back to the team to say, you know what, you did your vital signs, you followed your algorithm, you resuscitated the patient, you referred them appropriately, and you escalated care, rather than you missed this, you missed that, you know, and, and actually use kind of positive reinforcement as, as much as negative. You're, you're absolutely right, because sometimes a patient admitted from the emergency center to the ward, who then has a rapid response in 12 or 18 hours, there's usually a lashback of like, how did the emergency center think that that was appropriate? Who screwed up to put that patient in the wrong yeah. place? Whereas we've looked at it, this was the appropriate, uh, the, the, the system worked, the rapid response team worked, and to giving kudos back to those people like, thank you for calling a rapid response. Thank you for being engaged in this. Thank you for raising your hand and saying you have a concern. That's a big culture shift for us, absolutely. Okay. Um, that, that's great. We've got some more questions, but I'm conscious of time, and maybe sure. if you're able to hang around to the end, we can we can pull together some more some some more questions. So, yes. uh, thank you, Dr. Williams, for an excellent presentation uh, about your work. Uh, and I'm next going to move on to uh, Dr. Diaz, who I first met uh, with the WHO back in 2010. Uh, Janet is an accomplished specialist in intensive care medicine with expertise in clinical medicine and global health. She's committed to working with medical and public health professionals to deliver quality, safe and cost-efficient care to critical ill patients in resource-limited regions. And since 2010, she's worked for the WHO Epidemic Clinical Management Team as a technical lead for Severe Acute Respiratory Infection Critical Care Training, training Project. And she also works in San Francisco at the California Pacific Medical Center, which is a tertiary referral center. Hey, over to you now. Uh, hello, good evening. Um, I want to thank you, Kevin. It's good to hear from you again, and the organizers, Conrad, and everyone for this wonderful opportunity. My only disclosure is that I am speaking about my experiences and reflections after uh, working for the WHO for the past five years on the SARI critical care training project, 
we're all trying to answer the same question. How do we save lives from sepsis? And many of us are working in resource-limited settings where the mortality, as we've heard, and the burden of disease is high, as are the challenges. The challenges, to briefly go over, are structural challenges, such as access to medicines or oxygen therapy, perhaps in this case. Human uh, resource challenges, such as not having the right skilled uh, healthcare workers manage these patients. Organizational challenges, uh, not in the ICU, and we know there's great variability in what an ICU looks like around the world, but also at the hospital level and, more importantly, at the healthcare system level. And finally, the challenges of implementation, specifically how do you make healthcare workers change behaviors in order to improve processes of care. We all know that one size will not fit all, although we may try. Um, and that there will be more than one approach to answer, to address uh, the complex situation of improving uh, care um, for patients with sepsis. Thus, I want to take this opportunity to acknowledge so many of our colleagues around the world that are also working on sepsis-related interventions to improve care in resource-limited settings. And I, I do believe that innovation is important to make this field move forward and reach more people on the ground. Our hypothesis is simple. We work to empower frontline healthcare workers that are caring for sorry patients in an ICU with the knowledge and tools to improve clinical management. At the same time, we work to support the Ministry of Health of our member countries to achieve their goals. And what are their goals? Of early detection of sorry patients, of prevention of spread of infection, and early treatment. And when we talk about sorry specifically, this training project uh, came out, uh, was developed after the uh, pandemic in 2009, so it is dealing with influenza, seasonal or pandemic, avian influenza such as H5N1 or H7N9, MERS coronavirus, and the potential future respiratory virus of potential um, international concern. And together, we hope that this will reduce deaths from SARI and sepsis. Essential to our work are many aspects of our implementation. Flexibility and adaptability is essential because we work on the request of health ministries, our member countries. And all countries have their own political systems, economic situations, educational systems, own healthcare systems that make this quite um, complex. Commitment and persistence is necessary because we're working to support local teams make sustainable changes and improvements in clinical management. And as we all know, there is no um, simple solution or uh, to this, and this takes time. Strategic planning and patience is also necessary to keep on track towards the vision and goal. And opportunism. This means that when we see challenges, which there are many, that we don't see them as, uh, as negative, rather we see them as opportunities to make a change, an opportunity for improvement. Our course is three days, classroom based uh, course. It has been uh, peer-reviewed by many of you in the audience, I think. Um, thank you. It has uh, uh, been piloted and road-tested now for over five years and has trained over 1,000 uh, doctors, uh, mostly doctors, some nurses, in 15 countries. 
the content is based on WHO guidance when that is available, and I just wanted to uh, acknowledge two recent WHO guidelines that are really well done in the pediatric field on oxygen therapy for children and the pediatric emergency triage assessment and treatment um, guidelines that are very uh, transparent in nature and very resource-conscious um, when these are not available to make our uh, trading materials, we uh, refer to international guidelines such as the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, which I look forward to seeing the new uh, iteration in the near future, um, and uh, ongoing research, and of course, understanding that a lot of the research is coming out of high-income countries, and that of course has its weaknesses. So we go to countries at the request of the health uh, ministries, and we tend to meet the needs of the country. Hotspot countries that we have been to include Indonesia, Vietnam, and Egypt, and that is because of the activity of H5N1. We also work as an outbreak response. So if a country is seeing a surge of cases of uh, SARI, then uh, we get deployed as an educational um, clinical teams to provide education alongside epidemiologists or laboratory specialists, depending on what the country is asking for. And we've done those activities in Egypt, China, and Fiji most recently. In addition, we work under the pandemic preparedness framework. And currently, that is a part of the work we are doing in five Central Asian countries, including Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Armenia, to prepare the country's better care for sorry um, cases, um, even though they had not seen an outbreak in these past few years. Back to the course. Our course is adapted to meet the needs of the training. Um, it is a three-day course, but we all so add on additional days to go see the hospitals, to see the conditions um, that the clinicians are working under, to see how the ICU is set up, how the admissions unit or the emergency room is set up, what equipment they have. And we add on skill stations or practical sessions based on the needs that the doctors and the Ministry of Health feel is necessary. Our, um, the adapt actually key, and someone spoke about this, I think, uh, earlier today, that it is important that um, when we arrive, we see what the local situation is, and we adapt the materials as quickly as possible so that they are practical to the doctors that we are um, working with. The training materials are currently translated into Russian, Vietnamese, and Mandarin language. The course itself uses an interactive problem-based learning methodology, so it's adult learner-focused. We have a toolkit that is a very handy um, compilation of algorithms, checklists, uh, scales that can be useful to doctors at the bedside. We provide a test at the beginning and the end and a daily evaluation. And on average, we've seen an improvement of 20% of classrooms, uh, improvement of 20% by the, uh, on average of the classrooms and very high um, satisfaction uh, ratings. As you can see, the core agenda is actually quite comprehensive, um, and we follow the patient uh, from its, their first point of encounter with the healthcare system through the ICU and then to discharge. So there's five major themes of the content. One is early recognition, early detection, triage monitoring. The second is early infection prevention and control to prevent the spread of infection to healthcare workers. 
and to other patients. The early diagnosis and early antimicrobial therapy and diagnostics vary depending on the country. And then, of course, early supportive therapies, and this is what we think happens you know, at large in the intensive care unit, so resuscitation strategies, lung protective ventilation, targeted sedation and delirium management, weaning from the ventilator, and the preventative measures that we use in the ICU to keep it most safe. And our fifth layer is on ethics, which we think is important when dealing with uh, potential pandemics or outbreaks, as well as quality improvement, um, which is an essential skill for making sustained improvements at the local level. I feel the success of our training project is built on the relationships we have. We have an outstanding group of international faculty uh, that dedicate their time to travel and go to uh, all parts of the world to teach this course and uh, who quickly learn that they're not there just to teach, but they're there to learn. And the peer-to-peer knowledge exchange is really the essence of what we're doing. Uh, the learners and participants that we've trained are have been gracious, uh, open to learning about new ideas, especially in the more remote areas of the world where we have been, where doctors have not been to an international congress in many in many years have not heard about surviving sepsis campaigns or been up to date on uh, the recent literature that we are more familiar with. But despite their challenges, are open, inquisitive, and uh, wanting to learn. We do this work with health ministries who invite us and are transparent and honest uh, with the struggles that they are facing and, of course, our WHO colleagues that are uh, in the country and in the region. We are committed, as I said in the past, to looking at challenges and, uh, that the doctors are facing or the health ministries are facing and help them work together to find opportunities for change. How can we support their, um, their work and uh, moving farther along to their vision? So during our first visit, if things go well, which they usually do, then we plan a second uh, tailored training perhaps in the next year, uh, perhaps a training. The trainers approach, if there is enough uh, local expertise to do that, and uh, support them in other um, projects as needed. I want to highlight the work we've done in Central Asia because we uh, decided to support the health ministries there develop national clinical management guidelines for SARI. And this was an opportunity that the health ministries saw to improve and standardize the care of these patients, to use it as a tool to educate healthcare workers, um, and really to promote an interdisciplinary communication and effort between the various local uh, healthcare professionals that weren't necessarily speaking to each other that often, didn't have the opportunity. So this was um, the goal also to improve communication between the Ministry of Health and the frontline clinicians. And our hopes is that this will... Uh, improve opportunities for funding and help health ministries uh, continue to improve resources and uh, strengthen their healthcare systems. So we have ongoing projects in multiple countries and uh, I do believe um, our success is also based on the commitment for continuity to help these countries reach what their ultimate goals are, and each country takes its own path. It's been uh, very interesting to be on the journey uh, to improving uh, uh, healthcare worker knowledge on uh, the topic of sepsis. I'm sorry. 
A note about the WHO is currently undergoing reorganization, and that was mentioned yesterday morning. Um, currently, we are under the Pandemic and Epidemic Department, Clinical Management Team, and uh, the name of that will likely change soon, but we'll keep you updated. And I want to uh, make you aware of the Emerging Diseases Clinical Assessment and Response Network. This is a network of individuals, of NGOs, of academic institutions, of other organizations working together to improve the clinical response to emerging infectious diseases as well as the research coordination. So in conclusion, the SARI Critical Care Training Project is working to improve uh, to train frontline healthcare workers better care for patients with severe disease or severe acute respiratory infection and sepsis, and acknowledges that these uh, healthcare professionals are working under difficult conditions but with extreme dedication. We are working with a tremendous team of uh, people that have contributed to this uh, international faculty, health ministry officials, uh, WHO staff, and of course the participants, and we do so by uh, a three-day, which started as a three-day training course um, that is evidence-based and uh, peer-reviewed and uh, interactive in nature and has now grown uh, to, and is able to respond to outbreaks and do much more. So with this, I just want to say thank you and a special thanks to Dr. Nikki Shindo, who's our team lead in Geneva, and Dr. Caroline Brown, who's our leader um, at the regional uh, office, and to all the international faculty that have participated. Thank you, Janet, for a, an excellent presentation of the work of the WHO with regards to, to, to SARI. Uh, we have a question uh, from Genevieve Paisley, and she said that in Dr. Catherine Maitland's presentations, the challenges of sepsis management in, uh, in Africa, uh, she shared the WHO pocket book of hospital care for children, uh, but she said it doesn't yet contain a chapter on the management of sepsis in children. Uh, is the WHO planning to uh, develop a, th a third edition with an added chapter on the management of sepsis in children? Um, so that's an, an excellent question. This is a, a very, very important topic, which I've spoken to Kate about and other um, pediatric intensivists. Uh, so currently, what the WHO did publish is uh, the revision of ETAC, which is the Emergency Triage Assessment and Treatments Guideline, and that has addressed fluid resuscitation for children with shock in um, limited resource settings. And with that, uses the much more uh, conservative uh, fluid resuscitation recommendations for the child with uh, shock. So I would recommend that was just published a couple of I don't know, maybe two or three months ago, and um, you can find it easily on the Internet. So that has not been included into the child handbook because it's a new publication, but those recommendations now supersede what's in the handbook. Okay, that, that, that's great. Thank you. Uh, and a question from myself, if that's okay. So when I taught uh, quality improvement th throughout the world, uh, I, I've heard when trying to make people, you know, change, they said, well, that, that, this won't work here, we are different. How have you got over that barrier? I'm not sure if we have, <laughs> but, but the way we're trying to get over the barrier is um, I think quality improvement as a change um, is such a novel or kind of 
approach to some areas of the world and some areas of the world insist they do such a downward approach, you know, so if the Ministry of Health says to do something, then they will make the change. So I think you have to work at both levels because with working with the Ministry of Health in countries where the Ministry of Health, when they start to make guidelines or say things need to be done in a certain way, then the doctor may um, feel to make the change. At the same time, I feel empowering the doctor with knowledge, information, and tools, right? Just like what does quality improvement really mean starts to kind of uh, um, start some sparks to uh, take their own initiative. Okay, that's great. Right, we've got uh, one final presentation, which is going to be a video presentation. So thank you, Janet. Uh, that was fantastic. Uh, our last presentation is by Dr. Tom Frieden, who unfortunately cannot be here today. He's a very busy man. He's the director of the Centre for Disease Control and Prevention. Uh, and since 2009, Dr. Frieden has intensified the CDC's 24-7 work to protect the health, safety and security of the American people, including their agency's response to the recent Ebola epidemic and other emergencies. Uh, his CDC programmed under his direction focus on combating antibiotic resistance and preventing foodborne and healthcare-associated infections. Uh, and he previously led New York City's program that cut multi-resistant uh, TB by 90% and helped India prevent more than 3 million tuberculosis deaths. So uh, I'm going to pass you over and we'll get a video from Dr. Tom Frieden. I'm pleased to speak with you today as part of this first World Sepsis Congress. All of us at CDC appreciate the critically important work of the Global Sepsis Alliance. CDC works 24-7 to protect the health, safety, and security of Americans. This month, we released a new report calling for more action on sepsis in the United States. Sepsis is a medical emergency. In the U.S. and in many countries around the world, sepsis is a huge problem. And there's much more we can do to prevent, rapidly identify, and effectively manage sepsis. Sepsis is scary. I know this firsthand. 22 years ago, when our older son was four months old, he developed sepsis. When I walked in the door of our apartment, I thought he was dead. And he could easily have died if we hadn't rapidly gotten him diagnosed and treated. But today, far too many people around the world are at risk of dying from sepsis. We can and must do more to prevent these deaths. In CDC's recent assessment, we found that sepsis begins outside of the hospital for nearly 80% of patients. Yet in seven in 10 patients with sepsis, they had recently interacted with healthcare providers or had chronic diseases which require frequent medical care. Healthcare providers are therefore on the front lines of not only sepsis prevention, but also early recognition. Unfortunately, even though doctors and nurses may be seeing these patients, they may not recognize that the patient is at risk of sepsis. We call on U.S. healthcare providers to prevent infections that could lead to sepsis. Recognize sepsis early. Act fast if sepsis is suspected in a patient and inform patients and families about preventing infections that could lead to sepsis and the signs they should watch for to recognize sepsis early. Patients, parents, and families should educate themselves about sepsis and what steps they can take to prevent it. It's important to know how to recognize that an infection is getting worse and when to seek medical care. 
talk with a healthcare provider about the management of chronic illnesses and getting vaccinated to prevent infections that lead to sepsis. Practice good hygiene, including hand washing. And if you or your loved one is sick, don't be afraid to ask your healthcare provider, could this be sepsis? CDC takes a comprehensive approach to sepsis prevention and early recognition. We detect, respond, and prevent infectious diseases and promote safe and effective vaccines. We promote better management of chronic illnesses such as diabetes and cancer to prevent these patients from getting infections that could lead to sepsis. Our smoking cessation programs protect people from lung infections that often lead to sepsis. We've reduced rates of some infections that occur in healthcare facilities by half or more, but much more needs to be done. In addition to our sepsis prevention programs, we're expanding early recognition efforts by launching a new sepsis awareness campaign. And we continue to engage healthcare provider organizations, patients, and family members regarding sepsis prevention and early recognition. We're also improving the national tracking of sepsis so we can better know where this problem is most severe and whether or not our efforts are making a difference. The bottom line is, sepsis is a medical emergency. We can protect more people from sepsis by informing patients and their families, treating infections promptly, and acting quickly when sepsis does occur. Thank you to our wonderful partners who are working toward this goal. And thanks again to the Global Sepsis Alliance for supporting this event and all of our efforts to prevent and effectively manage this serious and all too often fatal condition. So, uh, so this has been a very informative setting uh, and, and session even. I hope you've enjoyed a lot of it. Uh, do we still have some of the, the guest presenters around for, for questions? Okay, uh, while we're waiting to hear that, but uh, I'd encourage you all to become a supporter uh, of the GSA uh, and the Global Sepsis Alliance World Sepsis Day and to sign the World Sepsis Declaration uh, and uh, follow us on Twitter uh, at World Sepsis Day uh, and on Facebook. I know that Eric is still here uh, and I've got a question for Eric if it's okay. Uh, and, and that is, uh, how many hours of early signs of septic shock are there for the, uh, for the, the, the pediatric septic patient? The question that I think you're asking is, you know, the, the struggle we have is on our uh, general inpatient floor, you know, vital signs are measured every four hours. You know, so at best... You know, if you're sampling a particular system every four hours, the likelihood that you're going to catch that you can, you're not going to necessarily find that any faster than that. Um, and similarly, if when you get a, an abnormal vital sign, you know, does that fall into the trap of like, well, it's, is that a measurement error? And so someone then goes about, well, I'll repeat it in 30 minutes. And so we've uh, struggled in that domain, whereas in the, obviously in the intensive care unit, you know, data is in real time and you have access to that, and you can have a, a higher a reliability of predicting it. But uh, if your vital signs are infrequent, then your, your sampling and your ability to understand that system, you know, uh, of, of inflammation uh, in that patient is much more difficult, and it's dependent upon that time frame. Okay. Well, that's great. And uh, the data you had for rapid diagnosis at the bedside, uh, is, that data, is that available very easily within the hospital setting? 
Yeah, because our initial uh, input, again, we were trying to be very, very broad, and it was uh, just based on initially temperature-corrected heart rate, um, and then that sort of brought up the best practice alert to suggest, hey, this patient could be in harm's way, and then there was a, a standardization of do they have any other high-risk conditions to make you think that, uh, that there was something else going on. And, and importantly, the patients that we... The, the patients we didn't necessarily needed a best practice alert for. So obviously if someone was, you know, cold and, and, and poorly perfused and, you know, uh, looked like they had meningococcemia, you know, th that wasn't the patient that we were, that we, that slipped through the cracks, right? It's, it's that patient 24 hours before or 12 hours before when maybe the, the fever was the first sign, the fever and the tachycardia, again, it being sort of nonspecific. So, um, we struggled with the uh, the low uh, positive predictive value of our value. Okay, that, that, that's great. Hey, a, a question for Janet is that uh, mm -hmm. you mentioned that a few nurses have taken your, your SARI course. Is there any future prospects for a course specifically designed for nursing staff? Uh, can you repeat that again, Kevin? Yeah, so you mentioned that that some, of, some nurses had taken your course, but the vast majority of them mm -hmm. were taken by physicians. Uh, do the WHO plan to create a bespoke course for nurses? Um, I do think it's in the future planning of uh, the training project. The initial work was done mostly with doctors, although it was kind of the, whoever the, you know, the Ministry of Health could have chosen to send some nurses. That's why we've had some nurses go through the training, but yes, in order to um, expand to nurses would be uh, in the future planning. Okay, that, that's great. Unless we've got any other final questions or comments from the, uh, from the panel, uh, I, I would thank you for your time. Does anyone have any questions or comments? Well, uh, um, I, I think that uh, there are two uh, brief comments. Uh, first is that uh, Patients that uh, with sepsis coming from the war are those patients that they have a worse prognosis. So the mortality rate in these patients is higher than those that are coming from the emergency room. And this is, I think, it's important to focus on uh, to try to detect as early as possible uh, these patients in the war. And, and secondly is that... Uh, the, uh, the those uh, ICUs or hospitals where the performance is lower is uh, those uh, that uh, the impact of educational programs and uh, and to inc and in, and the improvement of the organization will have a higher impact. Uh, those uh, centers that are uh, the performance are quite good, uh, then it's more difficult to to try to improve uh, the results. So, uh, message is concentrate in those centers that they have uh, a lower um, a lower performance and concentrate the uh, the efforts and uh, to try to improve the survival in patients coming from the war. So, in, in relation to those, one final question, Dr. Artigas, in relation to those two comments, what is the best way to overcome the, the silo attitude between the different departments? So, how can we have the... Well, the, the I, I think there are, yeah, there are two, two ways. Uh, first is to create a multidisciplinary 
sepsis team in the hospital. And, uh, and the second is to try to, uh, to push uh, and to, uh, to improve uh, the participation of the different uh, departments. I mean, uh, emergency department, the surgical department, the medical department, the microbiologic uh, department and the infection disease department, and of course the nurses too. Uh, I think this is a, uh, this is a disease that needs a multidisciplinary approach, and uh, to be successful is to create with a, a strong leadership uh, a multidisciplinary team that uh, can meet every month and to review all the information that is collected uh, continuously, and also to participate in the in the training and educational programs. Okay, that's great. Thank you, Dr. Artigas. I think we've got a final uh, comment from Dr. Williams. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to echo uh, what the last uh, Dr. Raw had said. It's the leadership piece in terms of breaking on the silos. It has to be the expectation from the leadership and demanding that the teams work in a multidisciplinary fashion. I mean, everyone recognizes the importance of that, but the leadership has to say, you know, you're going to do this, and, and there needs to be commitment behind that. Thank you. Okay, that's great. Uh, thank you. Well, that leaves us uh, really just to thank you all for uh, joining us on this session. I'd like to thank our sponsors for making the First World Sepsis Congress possible. Uh, and last but not least, to thank our speakers, which have given us a very informative session. Uh, and we're going to have to close it now to allow everyone to go off to their next session. So uh, have a nice weekend, and it's been a very successful First World Census Congress, thank you. Goodbye. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who made this possible, especially our sponsors, which you can find on the Congress website. We will continue with an interesting session on the challenges in the management of pandemics on February the 3rd. I hope you tune in again.